Welcome back to episode number 134 of The NP Dude. This is Jeff, The NP Dude, giving nurse practitioners a voice. And that is all of you guys out there listening. I need to hear from you. I need to know what's bugging you. If it's bugging you, it better be bugging me. And it really should be bugging all of us. And I mean that. That's not just a tagline. I say that because I mean it. It's just the best way I've found to say it. If there's something that's going on with you guys and you don't say something and you don't get it out in the open, if somebody's, whether it's an injustice and you feel like you're being wronged by someone in the profession or you are, um, you're being bullied and you don't know what what to do or you're being forced into contract terms and you you feel like you have no choice, um, you say something because knowledge is power and maybe you're more powerful than you, than you, uh, you realize, especially when we're a collective. So you got to send me an email. you got to let me know what's going on. Jeff at the NPDude.com. You can always PM me through Facebook personally. Um, just make sure if, you, uh, if you're if you an NP or a nurse and you're trying to connect with me, you got to let me know who you are. I get these like bland profiles, and I'm like, I'm never going to connect with that because I've been burnt before. <laughs> I ain't doing that crap. I get weird people asking me weird stuff and what you doing? Mm-mm, not going to go there. Not doing that. All right, so you got to tell me who you are. Um, you can also catch me through the NP Dude Facebook page. Don't forget to like and share the show. We're at 2558. And I kind of blew it off last time because it wasn't really all that important. But I just happened to notice it. So we're getting there. I want to hit 5,000 by the end of the year. We're not even close. So I need your help. That's the best way you guys can help me is by telling your friends, colleagues, coworkers, let them know that I'm doing this podcast. Let them know that this is out there. There's this wacky guy in the middle of Ohio driving on backcountry roads in my wife's van because my car's broken again. I'm not jaded about that, but whatever. It's on recall. But there's only like 3,000 of them recalled for the problem I'm having. It's ridiculous. Love that car. It's, just, it's the same problem. I've had it twice now. Anyways, I digress. The other way you guys can help support the show is you can go to my website, thenpdude.com. You can click on the Amazon banner, do the purchasing you otherwise would have done. It doesn't cost you a single penny more. And what does it do? It kicks me a couple percentages of your purchase, and I use it for web hosting. So that's how you guys can help support the show. Another way is if you click down at the bottom, you'll see a donate button. If you're feeling spunky and you want to throw a couple bucks at me, you could do it that way. Use your PayPal account, get it all set up, go ahead and click the button and throw a couple bucks. I'll take it. I promise I will. The um, other way you can do it is if you're in Ohio and you are in need of contract review services, I am a licensed attorney in the state of Ohio, and I would be more than happy to help you with that. What you do is you email me your contract and say, I want to hire you to to, uh, take a look at this. You got to be in Ohio. I get people every day, every single day, all over the country saying, dude, I just want, just just read it. I'll pay you. Don't worry. Uh -uh. I'm not losing my license. I've got this thing called uh, standards and morality. And I'm following the rules. I'm not losing any of my licenses to, to, to make a couple hundred bucks. It's not worth it to me. But I'll send you back a price um, and how to pay. And I usually give you my number right off the bat so we could talk and go through it. And that's a great way to, to uh, help support the show and me as well. So if you need, and it's a great service. I've, I've yet to have anybody. And I do, you know, one to two, three, four a week. It just depends on the week. And um, I've asked everybody at the end of my, my uh, phone in, phone call with them going through the, the document and I asked, was this valuable? And I've had everybody say yes. And I said, is there anything I could change? And they say, no, it was great. So it's a great way for you to learn how to negotiate contracts. I do this to educate, not so much uh, just to tell you the terms of the contract. I do that too, so you know what you're looking at in the future, but I also am helping you negotiate certain things that you can have flexibility on and some of my experience on what you're going to be able to get and what you're not going to be able to get that's out there. 
Okay, so that's a great way to support me. Support the show. I'm going to talk about a couple different things. I got like a hodgepodge. I got uh, multiple emails of just miscellaneous like one-liner questions, and I'm going to go through some of those. And I've got one that that had um, a previous listener, uh, um, the previous questioner, or I don't know, whatever you want to call him, that uh, has come back with some more questions about different stuff. So I'm going to try to do this in an orderly fashion and do it on my phone. So this is a newer grad that's waiting for credentialing to come through, and they and they have some questions about the credentialing process. And um, I've never actually done the actual credentialing. Usually you have somebody in the office that is designated as the credentialer. Now, whether it gets sent outside of the office or whether it's somebody in the office that does it, but most providers don't have to do their own credentialing. The first thing you typically will do is what's called a CAQH. And I don't remember what the acronym stands for. It was over a year ago that I did it. But what, what it is is it's a laundry list of questions that's an online database that you put all of your information in. And then what happens is once you put all that information in, specific insurance companies will request that information from the CAQH service and then ask you or your credentialing person for supplemental information on top of that. So let's say your your CAQH is just a bunch of like laundry list of questions, mostly the same stuff that is what your board and your certification ask you. Uh, do you have a felony? Um, have you ever lost a license in any other profession? Um, did any board actions in the past? Are you insurable? Do you have insurance? That kind of stuff, right? So I'm sorry, my keys are sliding all over. So that that's the basics of that, and it's a it's a pretty lengthy document, but it doesn't take that long. It's you know an hour or two, and you got that thing done. And then your then your your credentialing person has your information to be able to log into that, and they can submit it to any of the insurance companies. First question was asked to me is, do you have to get uh, credentialed with every insurance plan? Yes, you do. It's a contract. Credentialing is a contract. It's a contract from an insurance provider. Insurance provider meaning a third party payer of healthcare services. So it could be Medicare, Medicaid's, right? Medicaid's is plural because in every state there's several of them. I think there's eight or nine of them in Ohio. That makes it look like you have choice, right? But in reality, it's still government-funded insurance. They should just have one. It doesn't make sense to me. Why have more bureaucracy? Just get rid of it, streamline it, make one. Common sense would dictate, right? So yes, you have to you have to get a contract with every single one. Now sometimes it's in your benefit. You got good private insurance companies, and you're in short supply as a specialty. Then you can negotiate higher payment reimbursement than what maybe the other markets would dictate. So it is a good opportunity. You can get good insurance companies. You could get good reimbursement rates if you're a specialty. Family practice not so much. But if you're a dermatologist, and there's only two of them in your corner of the state and you're one of them, man, you can really negotiate well with the insurance because they want to be able to have as many people in network as possible because that's enticing for people to use their services. If they don't have a lot of people in network, why would anybody want their insurance? So it's enticing. That, that's why it's a, it's a benefit to them so that you can negotiate those things up. And some of the practices I talk to, they just take what they're given. They credential and they just say, oh, well, we're going to just take it. No, go back and say, no, well, you know what? You're going to pay me 125% of what the going CMS rate would be for the same billing codes, period. And you can, might be able to negotiate that or 1.5 times or two times. It just depends on what your specialty is or if you're, if you're in short supply, you might be able to make that happen. But yes, it's a contract between you as a provider and the um, 
insurance company. So when you're signing those documents, when the person comes up to you and says, you got to sign this in blue ink only, and you sign it, you might want to say, can I take a quick peek at the contract? It might be worth you reading it. They might be putting some obligations on you that you're not really aware of. Might be valuable. Maybe you don't care. I don't know. Okay. I glanced through them real quick. There was nothing earth shattering in there when I read through them. I was like, okay, let's get paid. And you, you, there was no negotiation room from, from in my my particular circumstance. We're mostly Medicaid. You, you get what you get. They're going to just laugh and say, okay, fine, don't get credentialed, you'll go out of business. So th- that's part of the credentialing process is, is getting those contracts signed. Now, some of the other questions that were in this email or uh, message was, was more specific to um, once you're in practice. Like, what, what do you worry about when you're billing? And one of the questions was the MPI situation and billing incident two. Incident two, I did a whole show on incident two billing. Go back and look up incident two billing in my uh, search box on my website, thenpdude.com, and you can find a bunch of stuff on that. So I would encourage you. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. But some of the new NPs believe that when they're waiting for credentialing to be done, they're in there working, and then they're billing under the insurance, under the name, of the physician that, or the other providers that are already being already credentialed. And I would say it depends. It depends on the contract. It really depends on the contract. Some private insurance companies will allow you to bill under your collaborative for a period of time while you're in the process of being credentialed. Others will not. Medicare and Medicaid, that's billing incident two. That's fraud. You're not allowed to do that. You cannot bill under somebody else's NPI number at all. It's fraud. The idea behind your NPI number is it's a way to, to it's your it's your individual, let's think of it as your social security number as a healthcare provider of services. And equipment too. They have to get NPIs too. So the problem is, is that if you haven't been credentialed, credentialed means they're checking that you you got all the right stuff. You got the license. You got malpractice. You don't have an action against you. They check the database, the National Provider Database, to see if you've been kicked out of any boards, if you've had any claims against you, if you've been sued and had to pay. All that stuff goes in there. So that's the process that they're doing. It's basically like an FBI background check, but instead of you as a whole entire person, it's you as a provider. And if that process hasn't been done and you're out there working and billing under somebody else and you screw up and keep making the same mistakes that you've been making before, eek right? So that's the intent. So I I would say be leery of a company that says, oh, you're going to bill under all of our our, uh, physicians and NPs that are already there that you happen to be there that day, and they're going to just sign your charts. That might be a problem. I I would be a little leery of that. If it was CMS, right? Medicare and Medicaid, I would be like, I'm going to go to the next job. Because if you're willing to be, be that loosey-goosey just to get somebody in there and get working and keep making money and, and skirting the rules, would it probably be okay? okay is, you know, in practice, it might be okay. But if something goes wrong, man, you're not credentialed. You could lose your, you could lose your license. You get a board action against you. You could have a fraud case, criminal case against you. Jeez, oh, Pete. No, <laughs> don't do it. Your license is sacred. It is sacred. It's the most valuable thing in your life as soon as you get it. Because if you lose it, 
it's gone forever. You'll never get another one in another state, and you'll probably never be a professional in any other in, in the, any other profession because once you get a board action, remember that those questions. Do you have a, have you ever lost a license before? Guess what? Every licensing agency for everything, including my law license and my engineering license when I when I had it active, would have would have asked the same kind of questions. They just do. All right. Uh, questionable billing practices. What are some of the questionable billing practices that could be out there? Though we kind of talked about that with the NPI number and um, um, not billing under someone else's NPI number. However, some questionable billing practices are these. If you uh, have a billing specialist that says, hey, Jeff, just give me your password and username and I'll just tweak your chart so that we can maximize um, our return. Wrong. <laughs> that is your chart, dude your chart no one else should be able to amend your chart now if you got a good biller they're going to come up to you and say dude you're missing some stuff you got to go fix this and i see the problems and if you agree with them you're like oh crap yeah i should have probably used that icd 10 code or maybe i i you know i missed the uh smoking cessation 99406 and i could have gotten that one and that's an extra 15 bucks or whatever that visit yeah go back and fix it you people make mistakes you can amend your you can amend it and resubmit it if there was something that you did wrong. But keep in mind, if you make a lot of errors, then you're a suspect. So you gotta be getting kinda on point. This is more important in my in, in the clinical nurse practitioners for change group in, than people think. Because part of the clinical hours that's not getting done is understanding the business aspect of things like CPT codes and billing and NPI numbers and things like that. In practice, they rattle these things off in, in quick turn and don't understand, they, no one explains it well. Because NPs, a lot of them are not good at business. They just, they're, they're plug and play. Plug them in, they do their job, and someone else worries about the business side of things. But if you've got that business acuity behind you, man, you, you, you're unstoppable. You, you can bill more for your services and make sure you capture all of the things you're actually doing. If you're talking about diet and exercise and you're doing, you know, all the things you're doing, you can, you can get certain codes, right? So maximize those codes. That's not illegal. That's not that's not unethical that's getting paid for what you're doing but underbilling is just as bad as overbilling and people say that all the time and I tend to agree if you underbill all the time then that's fraud it's and plus it's you know detriment to your potential employment I mean you, your goal is for making money and and helping people at the same time so you got to make money to stay in business so if you have a 99214 and you keep charging 99213s, then that's a problem. Now, here was a situation that I got and it frustrated the heck out of me. At the beginning of the school year, um, we had a bunch of people that just were lazy and didn't take their kids to school. So they would have a truancy and they would call up at noon and say, I need to get in today to get an off-school note because little Johnny had a cough this morning. So little Johnny comes in, and Johnny's running around the room like a nutcase. And Johnny is not sick at all. Vital signs stable. Ask the mom, what's going on? How long have you been coughing? Oh, well, it wasn't really a cough. It was just more of, you know, I wasn't sure if they were getting sick. Well, what symptoms? And they were vague. And they, I had like 20 of these in like the month of September. And so I did nothing for this person other than say, you know, um, Johnny's got to go to school right now because Johnny's not sick. So you have one hour to get this kid to school, and I don't care if it's noon. Get them to school right now. 
And so, you know, they get a note and for, for, you know, four hours until they get checked out, I'll give them that. But then, then they got to go back to school. The problem is, is that what do I bill that as? I didn't give them a medication. There was no medical decision-making. It was just a, just a quick focused assessment. So that's a 99212 in my book. So I put a bunch of 99212s and it got frustrating to people that, that, you know what, that's a 99212. I don't care. It was a 99212. I didn't do anything for this kid. I gave him a note for four hours. They weren't sick. They were lazy. The parents were lazy. That's not an ICT-10 billing code. I can't do a CPT code for parents lazy. So that that you have to be careful when you're doing your billing and be cognizant that if you are over billing just for the sake of drumming up money, then you're gonna be you're gonna get in trouble. Now, the the tendency statistically for nurse practitioners and any primary care providers in general is that we tend to underbill slightly. You'll see more 99213s. That's the average, but in reality, most of the time we're doing 99214s in primary care. A lot of them. I mean, just truly sick visits are 99213s. I mean, if you've got multiple comorbidities with medical decision-making, that means it. I talk about this new grads. I talk about MDM, medical decision-making, and CPT co-billing in another podcast. So go back and listen. If you're new to the show, I do a lot of this stuff already. I use the search. I put taglines in so you can go use the tag word. Okay? So that was a personal experience that happened to me. And then I had to answer to the director and say, look, you know, I'm, I, I stand behind my numbers, dude. <laughs> I'm not going to lie for you. Sorry. I'm not going to drum up a problem and treat him with an antibiotic because I want to increase my billing. Uh, no, that's not going to work. Sorry. Um, and they didn't ask me to. They just were, they were like, why, why was this? You know, you haven't seen this pattern before. And all of a sudden, September, this happened. I'm like, well, these are what I saw. I got, I got all the sick kids that weren't sick, but on my schedule. Um, let's see. So there's, um, let's see, what are some problematic insurance billing practices that, okay. So we talked about your password for your CAQH and giving it to the people so they can get you credentialed. But once you get your password for your EHR system, that is secondary only to your license in protection. You keep that protected because if somebody goes in and changes your chart on your behalf without your knowledge or with your knowledge and um, they upcode, it's your liability. It's your liability. It's your it's your chart. You're closing it. So you got to be very, very careful with your with your um, charting and make sure that that you do not let your biller just go in and edit your stuff. It might feel tempting to make it you know, make it easier for the practice, but they have to make a list of the problems and come to you with them and say, look, here's the issues that I see that need to be tweaked if there are any. And, um, they should be doing audits on a regular basis to evaluate how well you're, you're doing and that you're on target. And, uh, and so that's all part of the process. Okay. If a patient comes in for a nurse visit, MD or NP, MD or NP, does not even see them that visit cannot be billed under NP or MP. No, you can't. If you don't see the patient, you can't bill it. That's fraud. Now, nurses can. You can have a nurse visit. So, like if I have a blood pressure check or a weight check or diabetes education or any of the nursing functions, that's what I can delegate that, give an order in my in my visit that says uh, patient to follow up for nurse visit for blood pressure checks uh, Q week for next six weeks. <laughs> And then if there's a problem, they put you on the schedule. You have to have a chart for them. You have to actually have an open encounter. Be careful. A chart is, you know, their entire record. But an encounter. What I mean. 
Uh, if a patient comes in, no, wait, it's here. Some NPs think that you could just bill this. That doesn't sound right. No, it's not right. You can't just bill for services you don't give. That's fraud. And yes, you did articulate your questions well. <laughs> you know who you are. That was the last thing she had in here. Um, so that was one thing. Now, another one, and, and I'm going to go through, and this is going to be a little bit of a long podcast, but there was another question that came up about vacation. If you're a new grad and you're just negotiating your contract and you know you've got a bunch of dates that, you know, in the next six to eight months that are established dates, uh, um, I'm going to a graduation here coming up and I'm working on a new job. Um, you know, I've got vacations planned in the summertime. We're going out of town, um, whatever time off to work around the house, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is, but you got this and you're, you're, you're negotiating, you're getting your job deal kind of in the works. And when should you bring up, Oh, Hey, I got all these dates. I need to make sure that I got off. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of disingenuous. Hey, I'm begging you for a job. I'll do anything it takes. And Oh, by the way, I need all these days off. And so, um, do I think it's a problem? No, not at all. Because people understand that if you have a work-life balance, especially if you're doing something like a wedding, that was the specific question, that that encourages stability in your life, they're going to like that, okay? But I wouldn't lead with that. I would wait until you get the offer and that you're pretty darn close to accepting the offer. And right before you say, yes, I'll take this deal, you say, I love the offer. I got everything here. I just want to make sure. I got a couple days here and there that I need to make sure we get these off. And they're going to be like, okay, just give me a list of the dates and we'll make sure you're off of those days. That's the way you do that. It's not a big deal. It happens all the time. It's not, uh, you know, disingenuous to say, I'll do anything it takes. And then the next thing, you know, out of your mouth is all, <laughs> I need, I need six weeks off. They, they usually employers are pretty understanding when you're doing that. Plus keep in mind when you enter into a contract, it's usually the happy phase. You're going to be solving a problem for them. They don't know if you're good or bad, but you know, they're hopeful and everybody's happy and everything's positive. That's the best opportunity for you to get more stuff like that. And they may say, you know what, you know, maybe we can't do that date because we have other vacations or, you know, but you say, look, I'm giving you six months advance notice of an issue. Um, I'm going to be going to that. If you can't make that happen, then I don't want to work with you. So that's, you can kind of spin it the other way if they say no. I mean, look, you know, you don't want to give me time off for a wedding that I've had planned for eight months or a year or two years. Eh, I don't really want to work for you. So that, that's a test of them as well. If they give you grief about days off, do you really want to work for them? I, so I, I would use it as a, as a measuring stick as well, but it's usually not a problem. Okay, last thing I want to talk about because I got about four people that sent me this stuff. Since starting the CNPC group, chronic contractibles have come out of the woodwork and started emailing me, PMing me, giving me their their um, their stories, um, their backgrounds, more information, that kind of stuff. And the theme of all of them comes down to um, they're seeing a lot of people on many of the Facebook groups and just a couple on our CNPC group that are specifically saying um, negative thoughts towards the profession in that, um, let's see how I can want to say this. So I don't want to be a dick. I just don't want to be that way. I'm not trying to be that way. Um, People that are whining, and I'm going to say whining in a harsh way because I mean it for a certain purpose. People seem whiny and whining about others in the profession that are not understanding to their plight of what it took for them to get through NP school. Because when I say to you, honestly, 
NP school was the easiest degree I've got out of the four that I have. By far. That's a problem. The standards of the school and educational process are not there. The standards of entrance... This is the minimum threshold. Everybody wants to take offense to this when I say this. They want to say, well, my school was really hard. And it sounds whiny when you say that. Because maybe it was really hard. But the minimum threshold to get into most of the programs isn't that hard. The GPA isn't that difficult. You, know, you write a 300-word essay, whatever. And you, it's, it doesn't have to be that great. They'll, they'll let you in. GRE, maybe. Some do, some don't. A lot of them don't. You know, letters of reference. You can if, if you can't come up with letters of reference and you've been working as a nurse, you, you, there's a problem, right? So, I mean, the, the threshold to entry isn't that hard. And the, the problem is, is that we're seeing people that are making decisions to go into NP school without understanding the consequences. And so I want to talk a little bit about personal responsibility. And this can go for anybody out there. Personal responsibility could be about your finances in your personal life. It could be about finances to go to school. It could be uh, personal responsibility about um, um, just your future in general. Making decisions without understanding the potential outcomes. And so I see very often people that say on the Facebook forums, I haven't got a job in nine months, a year. A little over a year, I've been looking, can't find anything. Student loans are due. I'm barely making payments. I, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy. And, I sh- sh- and maybe I should. I don't know. And that's going to be taken as harsh. And I, and I guess I don't care. Because in reality, if you don't have personal responsibility to understand what your situation in life is before you enter into another situation you should at least be able to self-evaluate where you are today and what your options are for the future. And do it with introspection. I say introspection all the time. So you got to look at yourself and say, is this really the right thing for me? Everybody wants to say, oh, I did, you know, I worked two jobs and I worked my butt off and I spent all my time doing clinicals and I, did, I focused 100% on my school and that's great, you did, but it doesn't have to be that way. Focusing on your education should be the number one priority next to family. I mean, family always comes first. We get that, right? I mean, that's just, that's assumed. You know, you take care of your family first. But above your RN job, school comes first. If you want to become an NP and you're like, oh, well, crap, I got to work three jobs to be able to pay for it. Well, maybe you should think about that. Maybe that's not the best choice. Are you really going to be able to dedicate yourself to the, to the workload the way it should be should be dedicated? Maybe you're that smart and you can. I don't know. But maybe the, maybe you need to really think about it. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I needed to, to be PRN my last semester. And I'm, I'm mildly intelligent. I'm average at most things, but I'm mildly intelligent. I'm not super stellar intelligent here. But I, I had if I, did, if I worked night shift and, and did clinicals four days a week the way I did, I took every ounce of clinical days that they would let me take way above and beyond. Because I wanted to know what I needed to know. And it was super beneficial. And it would have been very difficult for me. So I, I, and I, and I'm moderately intelligent. Later, lady. All right, sorry about that, guys. So the, the, the problem, 
that I see consistently is people are going into NP school without understanding what the level of effort they really need to put into it because they're sold. And a lot of them, it's not their fault because they're not educated well on it. A lot of them are going into it because the schools are making it so easy to get into and so easy to get student loans and with promises of good paying jobs and that they're readily available and you're going to you're going to be working in an office and you'll have better hours and you're not going to have to wipe butts and it's going to be so much better and you know you're going to make more money and you'll pay it back don't worry about it it's going to be great The, the problem is, is that that's not necessarily true everywhere. So you really have to do a good evaluation of the market. So you have to do a market analysis of jobs in your area and hope that it stays as good, if not better, than it is today. Because two to three years from now, when you graduate and get your certification and go look for a job, you may not be in that situation. So if you look in your area and you see one or two jobs posted on the internets and you talk to some people and they say, no, we're not looking. And you talk to the hospital system and they say, no, we're on freeze. And you say, well, I think I'm going to go to MP school anyways. It'll get better. That's really not a smart move. If you don't plan on moving. Now, if you want to move to you know, New Mexico or Kansas or Minnesota and they have jobs there, maybe that's a great option. But if you're a little town and they only have one little school and they're pumping out 40 NPs and they're all your friends that are working on the floor with you, guess who's going to get a job? Maybe the best one or two. Or the one that's, you know, got nepotism into the practice. It's just that it's not a smart move. It's personal responsibility. You really got to self-evaluate. Evaluate the market. Evaluate yourself. Evaluate whether you can pay for it. I, I see these these comments and I'm like, I, you know, I don't feel very sympathetic against somebody that, that extended themselves $50,000 without understanding what their market is. That's your own fault. That's nobody else's fault. Ultimately, it's your fault. Now, I think that they are getting misled by the schools, the marketing recruiters, not the, not the educators themselves. The teachers aren't going out recruiting people, but the, the schools has marketing departments, and they're mass emailing everybody. You look at AANP's website. You go look, look through every email. You see you know, five schools posted that they want your money so that you can become a better NP. I just, I, it's disheartening to me and, I, and to many of my listeners that, that there's a willingness to just overlook that and say, look, you know, I, I, I'm not personally responsible. It's not my fault. They lied to me and said I was going to get a good job. And yes, they are. And that they shouldn't be doing that. I agree. But you also got to do your own homework and find out, is this really what I want to do? Do I really want to take the job at the FQHC working 60 hours a week and taking charts home every night? because I'm seeing 40 people a day so that I can make somebody a ton of money that's getting federal grant money and I sit there and make $85,000 a year. The same amount of money you could have done working a couple shifts a month as an RN and have no liability compared to that. Well, not no liability, but much lower liability. Doesn't make sense to me. So guys, I... Um, I hope that, that new listeners or RNs out there that are listeners that are contemplating going to school, go to school and kick ass. I really want you to. We need good NPs. We want good people in this profession. But you got to be smart about it. If you got to save up for two or three years and pay off your debt so that you can take a semester or two and focus on your studies and work PRN and just pay your, you know, your, your taxes and insurance and your little bit of credit card debt, then do that. Take the loan if you think you can get a good job. I don't care about you taking a loan. 
but you better be able to get a good job that's going to be able to pay for it. Because if at the end of the day, you're going to make the same amount of money or a little bit more than you were as an RN, and, and you've now got $50,000 more debt. Does that make a lot of sense? And maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's your passion to do it. Go do it. I don't care. That's fine. I'm, that's not a problem. That's not what I'm saying. If you want to be a family nurse practitioner or an acute care nurse practitioner or pediatric or CRNA, I don't care. Go do it. But you better make sure that you can pay for it. And we need to stop whining about it. That just tells me that they didn't make the right choice. Maybe it wasn't the right time for them. Maybe they should have spent a little bit more time paying off their debt, getting things paid down so that they wouldn't have to take as much student loans. Just seems to make sense to me. I I wasn't going to talk about that one, but I got like four people that either emailed me, texted me, or um, uh, sent me PMs on that one. And they all had the same theme of, you know what, people just need to be personally responsible. These schools need to be responsible as well. That's not what I'm saying. But please be responsible for yourself. Be responsible for your patients. Take Just do the right thing. Think about things before you act. Make sure you want to do it. If you're a student and you're uh, not sure which direction you want to go, go shadow people, talk to people, go find out the answer before you go finish. If you don't want to be an NP and you're like, oh, I'm just going to finish anyways just to finish, why are you wasting the money? Stop. Turn around. Go a different direction. Don't be afraid to say, you know what, this isn't the right fit for me. But if it is the right fit, go kick ass. Right? If you guys are working today, I want you to be smart. I want you to be safe. I want you to promote our profession. But do it in a smart way. I want you guys to be analytical thinkers. Don't be afraid to rock the boat. You can't be mean about it, but don't be afraid to rock the boat. All right, guys. I always enjoy you guys. I always enjoy talking to you guys and, and um, getting feedback from you guys. It's just been so darn fun with you guys. This podcast has been a blast. I'm learning a lot from you too. So keep it up. Keep emailing me, Jeff at the MPD.com. I want to hear what's bugging you. Um, don't forget to uh, use the Amazon affiliate link and help support the show. And uh, be smart. Be safe, guys. We'll talk soon.